Romans 3, 27, and we're going to read down to chapter 4, verse 4. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 941. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open, reading along there with me. And before we do look at God's Word and hear it preached, let's take a moment to call on Him and humble reliance upon Him to bless the preaching of His Word. Let's, let's pray. Our God, we do again look to you. We rejoice uh, that you have gathered us together and that you have appointed the preaching of the cross to be um, that means by which you save your people and bring them to glory. And we thank you, Father, that we have gathered together to hear about the glories of your son, Jesus Christ, and about the power of the gospel and about all that he has accomplished for us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know that power this morning. We pray that you would enlighten our minds, that we would grow in our knowledge of the truth about you. We pray that our hearts and our wills and our emotions would be impacted and affected by the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and that your son would be worshipped with you and the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work among us, that you would be transforming us by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27, um, Paul is bringing everything he started from 116 to an end here. It's going to transition in chapter 4 um, to a more focused uh, teaching on justification and the theology of justification by faith alone. But Paul is essentially bringing this section to an end in verse 27, and um, he's already climaxed. He's already given us the climax in Romans 3. 21 to 26, that's, that's the top of the mountain, that's the Acropolis, that's the Everest of Scripture. And now, in a sense, Paul kind of backpedals to give us what he's already given us to drive home the implications of the gospel. And he says, what becomes of our boasting then? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This ends the reading of God's holy inspired word to us this morning. Well, one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had happened almost a decade ago. Some of you know that Anna and I were engaged in evangelistic ministry in New Jersey. And on one particular night, I remember the boardwalk was packed and we were out in front of the building that we worked out of. And and I got in a conversation with a group of young men who were college students. And we were talking about justification by faith alone. They had all grown up Roman Catholic and we were debating the role of works in the Christian life. And at one point, one of their friends, a girl named Melody, had come up and started getting in my face very passionately that justification by faith alone wasn't true and that we needed works for standing before God. And she obviously had been taught that. She went to a Catholic parochial school. As I asked Melody questions, I, I sort of found out more about her. 
And, and just trying to think on the spot, what do I say to this girl? How do I explain this any further than I've already done for the last 30 minutes? I finally said, Melody, do you play any sports? And Melody said, yeah, I play soccer at college. And I said, you know, what position do you play? She played striker. I said, now, if you score the winning game of the season and you score that goal, who gets to boast? And after arguing with me about justification by faith alone and why it, it has to be the way it is and why it's by faith alone that we're accepted by God, I used that illustration and Melody looked at me and she said, I do. And then it was like somebody sucker punched her and she said, I do. And what Melody did was she got Paul's argument in Romans 3.27 that if our standing before God is based on anything that we do at any point in the Christian life, anything that we have contributed to our standing before God, then we get to boast. Then we get the glory. God doesn't get the glory. We get the glory. We get to say, I did it. And Melody got at that moment the very point of Paul's argument in Romans 3.27. I hope we get it today. It's interesting that Paul brings in these last few verses, verse 27 to 31, he brings these several things together that he's already dealt with. He's already talked about them. And the question we have to ask is why? Why does Paul bring up the idea of no boasting because of the gospel? Why does Paul bring up the idea of no partiality because of the gospel? Because he's already dealt with that, that Jews are no better than Gentiles. He's dealt with that argument at length. And why does Paul bring up the argument that the law, though it plays no role in our justification, is not therefore set aside in our life, that God still has commandments for his people? Why does Paul bring up these three things that he's already talked about after giving us the climax of what the gospel is. Paul has said in verses 21 to 26 that there is a righteousness apart from the law that is witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. You are righteous if you're in Jesus. You have a righteous standing. All of your unrighteousness and experience was put on Jesus. His perfect righteousness and experience is then credited and imputed to you. That's Paul's point about justification by faith alone. He's told us how it works. He has told us that in the divine wisdom, God found a way to be just, to uphold his holiness and his law, and to be the justifier of ungodly people like you and me. That's what Paul has just done in a very compact way, in verses 21 through 26. And then he returns. He returns to this, these three, we could call them implications of the gospel. Now, let me say this by way of preface before we look at these three. I think that Paul does this because implications are very powerful. You know, there's no way for you to read the book of Romans and, not to, and really read it and really understand it and really meditate on it and not to grow in your knowledge of the intricacies of the arguments of the gospel. You know, there's several things here. Paul actually is a man that often used negatives. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Paul was not one of these guys that just was known for what he was for. Well, let's just all get along, but here's what I'm really for. And you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a profound observation. He says that uh, the gospel demands that we use negative arguments because of sin. That's profound. Because of sin, the gospel demands that we use negative arguments. And so Paul is going to use a series of negative arguments that, that we don't get to boast because of the gospel. The gospel means no boasting. The gospel means no partiality. 
The gospel means no setting aside God's commandments. So, so Paul's going to use a series of negatives to drive this home. He's going to argue very carefully, very intricately in this section. And I think that it helps us to understand also at the outset that ideas have implications. You know, we live, you might call it late modernity or post-modernity, whatever you want to call it. We live in a day where we're told ideas don't matter. You have your ideas. I have my ideas. It doesn't matter. The implications of it don't matter. And don't you dare argue against my ideas and beliefs on the basis of your supposed implications because you're probably wrong. But I'm not saying you're wrong. You can believe whatever you want to believe. And I'm not going to argue against the implications of what you believe because you shouldn't argue against the implications of what I believe. And it's a sad day. It's a sad day. You're going to get that in college. You're going to get it on the news. You're going to get it in every TV show. This is not ivory tower stuff. This is everyday worldview stuff. And it's interesting to me. I want to read a quote to you. J. Gretchen Machen, old Presbyterian theologian of the 20th century, who battled liberalism in, in modernity, um, actually said this. I want you to think about this. Machen said, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacle to the reception of the gospel. What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. If you don't believe that, ask Fidel Castro. If you don't believe that, ask Kim Jong-un what drives them. False teaching, while it starts as a matter of academic speculation, pulls down armies and empires. In that second stage, Machen says, it has gone too far to be combated. The time to stop it when, was when it was still a matter of impassioned debate. Now, whatever the context of what Machen's saying, Paul is saying to you, beliefs have implications. We all have beliefs. All of our beliefs have implications. And it's not always wrong to argue from implications to beliefs. Paul does that here. Notice the first thing he tells us in verse 27 is that one of the implications of the gospel is that no one gets to boast because everybody's on the same plane. Everything's flattened out. Everybody is ungodly by nature. Every mouth needs to be stopped. All the world needs to become guilty before God. Everybody needs to own their sin. That's the hardest thing in the world is to get people to own their sin, even in the church. Very hard to get people to own their sin. Paul just spent three chapters trying to say, own your sin, because when you own your sin, then you'll come to Jesus in faith, you'll trust him, you'll receive his righteousness, you'll rest in that, and you won't get to boast about anything. And you know, Paul actually says in Galatians 6, it was one of my favorite verses, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wouldn't boast in his Jewishness. And Paul, Paul of all men, Paul, Paul's the one that knows what boasting is. Paul in Philippians 3 tells us, I was Hebrew of Hebrews. I was Pharisee of Pharisees. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was smarter. I was better. I worked harder. I tried harder. I kept the law blamelessly. And all of that was dung and rubbish that I may be found in Christ. And that Paul is the Paul who's qualified to tell us that in the gospel, no boasting. So that means... If the gospel you believe in any way allows you to cram your works into it, it's not the biblical gospel. If in any way, this is the litmus test, what you believe the gospel to be includes what you're doing 
for your standing before God or acceptance before God, it is not the gospel. I want to read this to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives us this, and he's kind of reflecting on this argument. And, and Lloyd-Jones says, you always have to ask yourself this question. No matter what you believe, you have to ask yourself this question. Is this view humbling to me, glorifying to God? If it is, it's probably right. I think that's very powerful. Is this view humbling to me, glorifying to God? If it is, it's probably right. If God gets all the glory for the redemption of his people and he gets to say, I did it. God gets to say, I did it. Jesus gets to say, I did it and you don't. It's probably right. Um, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, you won't go far wrong. If whatever view you're holding is glorifying to God and humbling to man. But if your view seems to glorify you and to query God, well, there's no need to argue or to go into details. It's wrong. It's a very good universal rule. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? Notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By what rule? It's what Lloyd-Jones just said. This is the rule. If it's humbling to you and glorifying to God, it's right. If it's glorifying to you and, hum- and demeans the work of God or downplays that, it's wrong. That's a rule. And notice what Paul says. Is it by the law or the rule of works? No, but by the law of faith, the principle of faith. Now, this is important to get. There are many people who look at the Bible as sort of God doing two different things. The Old Testament He's calling his people to work for their salvation. The New Testament, because obviously it was too hard for them, he's giving us a new and more easily attainable law, faith. And that sounds good to a lot of people. I can do that. I can believe. That's something I can do. I can contribute that. I can bring that to the table. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I did this. I did that. And and in doing that, they're doing the very thing Paul is condemning. So when Paul says that it's not the law of works, but the law of faith. He's not saying faith is a new and easily attainable law. He's saying it's the principle of faith, that faith takes away all boasting. Now, what's interesting, and Paul is absolutely brilliant, what Paul does in Romans 4 is he introduces Abraham as the example. And that was brilliant because the people who were debating Paul were the descendants of Abraham. And so Paul very brilliantly says, well, let's go to the father of the Jewish people. And what does the scripture say about Abraham? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, he believed. He was credited the righteousness of God by faith, looking forward to the coming redeemer. He believed the promises of God and Abraham had nothing to boast about. And you know what's amazing? When you read the scriptures, you'll never find Abraham boasting. You'll never find him boasting. In fact, you'll find Abraham and his descendants saying, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies or of the kindness that you have shown to your servants. Because Abraham believed the gospel that humbles. Now, here's the question. You may be thinking, well, yeah, sure, I got this. You know, we hear this all the time. I'm not a very proud person. Oh, my friend. Oh, my friend. If you are sitting there saying, I am not a very proud person, I'm not like these people over here. You may be doing the very thing Paul is writing against. Now, I know I'm reading a lot today. I want to read this to you because I think this is another absolutely brilliant observation from Tim Keller. He says, when you ground your identity, when you boast in something you have or do, 
That identity, as much as it seems to build you up, always divides the human race. It leads to all kinds of destruction, breakdown, divisions, and conflicts. So if the ultimate boast of your soul is what a hardworking person you are, you will feel superior to people that you think of as lazy. Man, that is convicting. If, you, if your identity ultimately is built up with, I'm such a hardworking person, I did so good in my job, I'm, I'm not lazy like those people over there. I think Keller's right. He says, if that's ultimate, your identity's bound up in that, and that's in the inner life, that's not always on the tongue. That's inside. He says, if you look at a lazy person and you feel superior, and he says, if, if your identity's in that, you will feel superior, you have to, because you're trusting in your diligence and your hard work. You disdain them. If the ultimate boast of your soul is that you are a good person or that you go to church or that you study the Bible or that you obey the Bible or that your doctrine is all just right, then you have to despise infidels. You have to disdain them. Make it easy to mistreat them. If the ultimate boast of your soul is I'm part of this great people, this nationality, this ethnic group, this group of people, it's almost impossible not to villainize and demonize any other people group that doesn't respect yours. That's brilliant. And that's convicting. And that should be convicting. And we should say, how in my life am I holding on to anything? And you know what? I, you know, I'm going to say this just frankly this morning. I catch myself saying things that reveal that I think I'm better than other people. And I imagine you do. And when we do, we are going back to that default. Remember I said this last week, conscience is hardwired to the covenant of works. It is hardwired to try to work to be better than other people. And when you catch yourself gossiping and slandering and putting down and talking about other people and putting yourself up here, I'm here, they're here, you are essentially saying, I have something to boast about. And your mouth has not been stopped before God. And so what Paul would say is, listen, when you look at the cross, when you look at what God has done in Jesus, when we see Jesus carrying his own cross, sweating great drops of blood in the garden, when we see him agonizing under the wrath of God, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we hear him cry out, it is finished, it should shut your mouth. And you should say, I am vile and wicked. I am the least of all the saints. And God be glorified for redeeming me. And that's why we need the gospel every day. And so the implication of the gospel proves the truthfulness of the gospel. And the implication of the gospel shows whether you believe the gospel. I want you to think about that. This is important because this shows what gospel you're believing. It shows whether you're believing the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, or whether that's just up here and we're not actually trusting the Lord Jesus. Now, I had one of my best friends in the world. I met him a month before I was converted, and I've learned so much from him. And, and one thing that stuck with me, we went out maybe three months after I was converted, and he was like, oh, I'll get it, I'll pay, I'll pay. And I said, oh, I'll get you back. And he was like, see, the flesh hates grace. And I was like, what? You know, I'm, I've only been a Christian three months. The flesh hates grace. What do you mean? And he said, well, when you, when you offer to pay for somebody and they say, oh, I'll get you back, that's, that's a sign that we don't like being served. We, we don't want to be weak. Now, you may say that's overplaying it. I actually think that's profound. 
that I'll get you back is I'm going to pay my due. I'm going to pay my debt. I'm going to take care of myself. There's a pride in that oftentimes. I know there can be a kindness. There can be a thoughtfulness in that too. But the flesh hates grace. The flesh hates grace. Um, that's why we need to be called to understand and believe and rest in the grace of God and pray for the grace of God and understand what that means. And so Paul gives us this first example. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And then he says in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, Luther was criticized by certain people, usually Roman Catholics, for adding the word alone, by faith alone, that we're justified by faith alone, because it's not there in the Greek. It's there by implication. If we're not justified by what we do, but by believing God's promises, it is by faith alone that we're justified. And so Paul drives the whole thing home, and he says, we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone, not by works of the law, not by what he does. Abraham's the example Abraham did nothing. I don't know if you know this. Abraham was an idolater. Um, Joshua tells us that Abraham worshipped other gods on the other side of the river. So before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham was worshipping idols. God called him, gave him promises. The Bible said he believed those promises, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. The word in the Greek is logizomai, credited, imputed. It was put into his account as if he had a perfect righteousness because he believed on the one to come. And if you're in Christ, that's happened to you. And let me say this. Why preach justification by faith alone again and again and again? Why isn't it just something? Is that something we just need at the beginning of our Christian life? I think we need to hear about it all the time. It's not the only thing we need to hear about, but we need to hear about it all the time because justification by faith alone excludes any right to boast. It, it, it kicks it out the door. It strips from you any right to boast about anything. Now, secondly, the gospel and justification by faith alone as a central part of that gospel destroys or negates any partiality. Notice what Paul says here in verse 29. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. For there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Now, Paul is again picking up that Jew-Gentile distinction. Let's bring it home to bear because we don't have a Jew-Gentile distinction. We have a black-white distinction. We have ethnic distinctions in our culture, and the gospel obliterates that. Let me say this. There was no such thing as Jewish blood. There is no such thing as Gentile blood. There is no such thing as white blood. There is no such thing as black blood. There is Adamic blood. There is one God, and everyone came from one man, and the Bible says that destroys any partiality that you may show that makes you think you're better than some other people group because of your pedigree or your upbringing or anything else. And let me say this. It is a vile sin. It is a vile sin to be racist. And actually, it's a sin of self-righteousness. It's a sin of self-righteousness. If you look at other people and think you're better than them because of any ethnic association or upbringing or anything else, that is self-righteousness. That is the heart of legalism. God despises it. The gospel cures it. The middle wall of partition was broken down when Jesus 
died on the cross and his flesh was torn apart. The middle wall was breaking down. God is a God about saving a people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. And here's what happens. When you get that, you start to care more for people that aren't like you and you want them to know the gospel and you stop just trying to hang out with people exactly like you. That's what happens. You start associating with people unlike you and you long to see the nations get the gospel. You know, I have a dear friend. He's from Hickory, North Carolina. He has the most southern voice I've ever heard in my life. Talks like this from Hickory and very southern. He's one of my best friends in the world. And he pastors an almost all black Calvinistic Baptist church in Philadelphia. And it's the most wonderful and glorious thing in the world. And he wrote yesterday on his Facebook wall that he met three people in his neighborhood. It's a very ethnically diverse neighborhood in Philadelphia and very low, low income. He met three people from a part of India that are unreached people. And he, he put all the statistics and he, get, he had given them, he had, I'm sorry, it was in Senegal. It was in Senegal and he had given them uh, Bibles, French Bibles, and he had shared the gospel with them. And he said, pray that they will take that gospel home to their people. This is one of the known unreached people groups. Our hearts should be for everybody around us who's unreached. And let me tell you this, I think a lot of Savannah, Georgia is unreached. I'm gonna be honest with you. If we don't have the conversations about what the gospel is, how are we gonna know who understands and knows the gospel? There's a lot of people that don't know what the gospel is in Richmond Hill, in Savannah, I promise you, Open your mouth and have the conversations, and you'll find out that very thing. Ask them what they believe. Ask them what their churches teach. Ask them what they think the gospel is. Ask them how you're accepted before God. And what happens is you'll start having a greater heart for people unlike you because that's what the gospel does. God, there is one God. He is not the God of America. He is not the God of Jews. He is the God of Jews and Gentiles. There is one God over all people. He made all people from one blood, Paul says in Acts 17. And God is on mission to redeem people. So when you get the gospel, all those partialities go out the window. And, you know, I want to say this because this has nothing to do with this text. But there's another implication to this. When you start caring for people unlike you, you'll find that they are some of the most wonderful people and you will benefit more than you could ever imagine from those relationships. That's just an aside. I've, I've learned that. People completely unlike me in upbringing, in background, in ethnicity, and I have been benefited the most. I've been impacted by my friendship with those people. So the gospel destroys boasting. The gospel destroys partiality. And then finally... Notice what Paul says here, and it's interesting he even has to ask this question, um, do we lay aside the law then? It's an interesting and very nuanced thing here. Justification by faith alone is so free, and, and the gospel is purely by grace, and not by anything that you do, that, that in any way God takes account of, now, in sanctification, we'll get into that in chapter 6, but for justification, how you stand before God, it is so free and so full that the logical question has to be, well, then we don't have to obey the law. We don't have to keep the law, right? So that if the gospel that you're hearing is saying, do this and this and this and this and this, that's not the gospel. But if the gospel you're hearing leads you to say, well, then I don't have to worry about the law at all, you're probably hearing the true gospel, and what Paul is going to say here, notice this, 
He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, let me put it this way because it's difficult. Before you're in Christ, you're under the law as a rule of condemnation. You're under the law as a broken covenant of works, and you're under the law as a rule of condemnation. And though that law demands works and people try, and everybody you ask, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm better than these people. I try to be a good person. I don't do these things. Everybody by nature is trying to keep the broken covenant of works in some way, even though they're failing miserably. And you're under that, and that demands works, and God's going to judge people outside of Christ by that law. Once you're in Christ, all those transgressions have been nailed to the cross. You're not justified or condemned by that law. On judgment day, you will neither be justified nor condemned by that law. Christ has paid the price for it. He's given you righteousness. You and the law, you are not under the law in that covenant relationship like you were before you were in Jesus. But the law is still a a sphere in which our holiness is being worked out. We only know what's pleasing to God by what God has revealed. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We should love God's law. We're delivered from it as a covenant of works. We should now love the Ten Commandments because God is saying this is what a person who has been redeemed looks like. In fact, one of the blessings of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah God says to Jeremiah, in the new covenant, I will forgive your sins and your lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And we love that part. I love that part. We should love that part. Your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And then God says, I will write my laws on your mind and put them in your heart. The Holy Spirit will write his law on your heart so that you'll love and delight in holiness. You won't want to commit adultery. You won't want to steal. You won't want to bear false witness. You won't want to have other gods before God. Yes, you'll fail. Yes, you'll fail. But as you continue walking by faith in Jesus and praying for a greater measure of grace, you will love those laws. You will not be trying to keep them for your standing. But God, in the gospel, establishes and upholds his law while giving you free forgiveness and pardon for all your sins. I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to ask you to think through these three categories this week ahead, especially the first one, especially ask, what do I boast in? Now, I have a number of minister friends, very godly, who will sometimes say things like, well, I really preached a great sermon last Sunday. They'll say that. I think I really preached a good sermon. Uh, I had one recently say to me, um, using himself as an example, he's a very fine theologian. He said, well, I know, you know, there, there are not many guys as good at theology as I am. Um, we call this humble brag. I don't know if you guys have heard that. It's humble brag. Um, we all do it. We're, ve- we're very sophisticated. You know that? We're, we've, had, we've had lots of centuries to sophisticate ourselves learning from history and example and we've we've we, we're we're very sophisticated people at humble brag and so we need to think about what we say what goes through our minds and we need to be confessing whenever whenever you and this is very helpful to me whenever you catch those thoughts that are sinful where you're thinking I'm I'm special sauce I'm really great and I don't do what these people do over here and I'm not like them down there whenever you catch those thoughts 
that's a great time to go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. You were wounded for this thought. You were bruised for that wicked thought. I am not believing your gospel. I'm trusting in myself. I, I'm going to promise you that probably happens on a daily basis to all of us. We need to be repenting of our pride. That's one of the things Jesus did in the gospel. One of the beautiful things is go to him and confess it and say, Lord, I hate this. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to be a boastful person. I don't want to think I'm better than these people over here. That's dishonoring to you. I've forgotten the gospel. Forgive me. Make me love the gospel. Make me trust in you alone and rest in you. That's what God wants for us. Let me say this. If you've never come to Christ, um, if you've never repented of your sins, uh, you know, I hope that, I often think about Melody and I wonder, you know, I wonder what happened to her. Those are the times I wish I had somebody's last name so I could look them up online. I often wonder what happened to her. You know, I hope as you think about the implications of the gospel, if you realize I have, I have been boasting, I have been showing partiality, thinking I'm better than other people. Um, you know, maybe even I've been just, who cares about God's law, just living a wild, reckless life. If that's you, come to Jesus, because Jesus says, I'm going to give you a perfect righteousness. I'm going to forgive all your sins. I'm going to, I'm going to humble you. And you know how he does it? This is amazing. God, the infinite God, humbled himself. The only one that didn't need to humble himself, humbled himself became of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, was born under the law that he might redeem those who were under the law. He became a slave for you and me, and now he's been exalted to the highest place of honor and power, and as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we grow in our humility. He goes up, we go down. We go down. Christian life should always be going down in humility, going down in humility. And Christ always increasing in glory and honor and praise. Come to him. Come to him. Don't waste another day. Get on your knees. Get on your face. Come to Jesus Christ. Plead with him to free you from any self-trust or self-righteousness. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we are all guilty of uh, being boastful and proud and self-trusting. Lord, we are, um, we are so much more sinful than we often want to admit and see and know. And so we pray that you would humble us under your mighty hand. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to fall on the Lord Jesus and be broken. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would increase and we would decrease. We pray that the words of our mouth would not be to put others down and tear them down, but to praise you and to proclaim your gospel. We pray, our God, that you would give us power by your Holy Spirit and that you would write your laws on our hearts that we might delight in them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.